Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Okay, it's recording. Now show me your face. What are you doing? <laughs> oh my gosh, you can't see Bernadette, and for some reason, <laughs> she has a metal strain on her head, pots on her boobies, and a grinder at her groin, which she's playing like a friggin' car. <laughs> no. Do you know why this is? Is because I posted a meme on Instagram a few weeks ago and Bee's just embodied it. Oh my gosh, you were just so much. Attention. It was so tricky. I mean, I don't think you nailed it, but I appreciated the effort. I mean, that was a lot of I think I feel like you had to schedule that into your calendar in order to execute it. Shut up, she's looking, she's showing me her diary. Dress up for Mel. Well, she's scheduled it in as a daily task. Oh, oh, shit. oh my gosh, that is the best. <laughs> okay, I now know the full answer as to why I invited B to be part of the Great Birthday. She takes it seriously. You're oh, welcome. That is exactly what I needed today. I needed you to be dressed up as an Instagram meme and just dancing away with a great on, on your groin. That was special. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, after that very serious introduction, we are going to talk about the very serious um, circumstances around gestational diabetes screening on this episode because it's episode 18. Episode 18. It's 18. Look at us go. Remember, we're up to like 3 million downloads as well. It's incredible. <laughs> not. Yeah, not. We're up. Oh, to- not with that attitude, we won't be, Mel. <laughs> I keep getting messages from people saying that, out there in the world, apparently there's someone described it as a cult following of the Great Birth Rebellion. So I don't know what's happening out there. No, it's not a good word, right? Well, no, she no cult following means like you like she no, it was meant really positively. It was within a context of oh. you guys should keep going. It's amazing. I'm telling you, on the ground out here, you've got a cult following. Also, the CTG episode is running rampant through the maternity care system. Yeah, I don't want a cult though, because cults typically in history haven't done great things. I know. I want like a full rebellion. Yeah, but I think a following comes before the rebellion. Right. All right, fine. Let's get started because dressing up in kitchen utensils is not the topic of today's episode. No. In today's episode, we're talking about glucose tolerance testing. Now, I want to be super clear from the outset is we're not talking about gestational diabetes in this episode. So that's when you get diabetes in pregnancy. And there's a whole thing around treatment and management of that. We won't have time to go into it, but what we do want to talk about is screening practices around diagnosing or trying to diagnose people who have gestational diabetes. So that's our scope today because we don't want to be giving, we're not giving health advice regarding what to do if you have diabetes. We're talking about what are the best ways, what's the research behind the current gestational diabetes screening and testing that we do for women in pregnancy. That's where we're going to start today. Should I go? Should I get started? Okay, B's nodding. Wow. Okay. All right. So very briefly, I want to talk about what is gestational diabetes. Now, gestational diabetes is a special kind of diabetes that only happens for pregnant women. 
You can't get gestational diabetes unless you're gestating. So this is not pre-existing diabetes. Like if you've got diabetes and then you become pregnant, you don't then have gestational diabetes. Uh, And this is not type 1 diabetes where you're sometimes born with it or it develops and you need insulin. This is specifically diabetes that occurs for women who didn't previously have diabetes but then became diabetic during their pregnancy. And there's a whole reason behind why that might happen. And we will talk about it in another episode when we talk about diabetes, but essentially the placenta changes how your body can use glucose that's in your bloodstream. And so sometimes that can tip women into a diabetic state. Once you stop being pregnant and your placenta is born, you are effectively cured of gestational diabetes. And you may be at risk of developing diabetes later down the track, but at that point, the treatment for gestational diabetes is firstly to manage it in pregnancy, but then once the baby's out, you're effectively cured. They do a test at six weeks postpartum to see whether the diabetes has cleared. And if it hasn't, then it was likely that it was pre-existing diabetes um, because it's still around. So then what do we do? Let's talk about how it's screened for for pregnant women. So there's two camps. There's what we call universal screening for gestational diabetes. And then there's risk-based screening for gestational diabetes. And it's typically done, I'm going to talk very broad terms because what happens after we do these episodes is people go, that's not how they do it in our hospital and our area does this, which is amazing. I love that there's diversity, but for thinking generally, what most women will be exposed to will be universal screening. And what that means is there's a bit of a blanket rule in most hospitals that everybody gets screened for gestational diabetes, usually between 24 and 40 and 28 weeks, if you are not deemed to be at risk. Sometimes if you're deemed to be at risk, they'll recommend glucose tolerance testing earlier in your pregnancy. And the reason they are doing that is to see if you actually have pre-existing diabetes that hasn't been picked up. And so the end also because they're trying to manage the condition earlier in pregnancy as opposed to waiting another 10 weeks where it might, might be much more developed and harder to manage. So they're picking, trying to pick it up earlier. And what, so yeah, with universal screening, they just screen everybody, but with risk-based screening, they sit down and go, right, do you have any particular risk that will make you more prone to developing gestational diabetes than another woman? Uh, For women who are considered overweight or having a high body mass index, high BMI, if you've had a previous baby that's bigger than 4.5 kilos, if you previously had gestational diabetes... If you've got a first degree relative with diabetes, like a sibling or your mum or your dad, you're also considered to have potentially genetic predisposition to it. Uh, The other thing that's flagged now is age. So as women are getting older, having their babies older, everybody's concerned that the older you get, the sicker you'll be in your pregnancy. So Older women are considered at risk of everything for some, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that's the truth. I'm just saying that's what the hospital system sees. And yeah, ethnicity is another one because there are some people groups who t- seem to be more sensitive to developing gestational diabetes. And then multiple pregnancies often too, because like age, multiple pregnancies are considered to be at more risk. And so they are more inclined to be offered more screening. And when you say multiple pregnancies, you mean like with twins or triplets. So multiple, for those that don't know, multiple pregnancy is that you're carrying multiple babies at the same time. And the reason why you're considered more at risk is because there's more placenta 
and the placentas seem to be one of the reasons that can give can make you prone to gestational diabetes. So some cate- some care providers will only do formal screening, gestational diabetes screening. Can you hear screaming in my house? Just a little tiny bit. Okay, I've got like sixty children here. Hang on a second. I could see them all running. Yeah, that we there's a homeschool group that gathers a lot. Yeah, I could see them all behind the back. Yeah. Okay, they're gone now. Um, what were they just saying? Something about universal testing. Oh, yeah. So you might be in a setting that does universal testing. So basically, it doesn't matter if you have any risk factors or anything, whether you're young and healthy or old and sick, whatever, there's multiple categories in between there. But everybody gets a screen for gestational diabetes. In a risk-based model, only the women who are considered to have risk factors for gestational diabetes will be screened and the other ones will just go about their pregnancy having skipped that screening. Typically, mainstream hospitals will do very similar things and then your private care providers, either private midwives or private obstetricians, may do things that look a bit different. But yeah, as Mel said, everybody's different. So we're just giving overall advice what typically happens, overall information. Yeah. And so probably if you're pregnant and you're going through mainstream maternity services, you're most likely between 24 and 28 weeks be offered this formal glucose tolerance test. It's the diagnostic test for gestational diabetes. So if this test comes back and the range of blood sugar is above their considered range, and we'll talk about the issues of what the cutoff numbers are as to whether or not you have diabetes, if it comes back high, you're considered to have diabetes after having done that test. But basically what we're saying is if you're pregnant, be prepared that at some point, usually between 24 and 28 weeks, you'll be asked by your care provider to do, or if you want to do, the formal glucose tolerance test. They Sometimes it's called the FGTT or the glucose tolerance test GTT. And this is how it's done, is you would arrive to usually a pathology lab or to the hospital for your routine antenatal care, and they would test your blood sugar on arrival through a blood test. Then they give you a, a drink which has... 75 grams sugar. It's got obviously other ingredients, but that's the, the the idea is that everybody gets 75 grams of sugar. And then one hour after having that, you they take your blood test again. And then two hours after they take it again. So the idea of this is they're trying to see how your body is digesting, processing and eliminating or using sugar during your pregnancy and you're in a state of diabetes if your body's having trouble using that sugar that you've just had so if you had diabetes theoretically those that one hour and two hour reading would be high so one thing they do to decide if you have diabetes or not is there's a cutoff limit as if if at one hour if your blood sugar is over a particular level they'd say that's considered a diagnosis for diabetes and again at two hours if it's over a certain limit then you would be diagnosed with gestational diabetes because your body's demonstrated that it's having trouble processing the sugar that's given to it and therefore it's assumed that you're diabetic. Now there's a bit of contention and I'm again not going to go into detail about it, but the cutoffs for what's diagnosed as diabetic or not are controversial to say the least. And so we're still really haven't decided what cutoff is diagnostic for diabetes or not. And recently they changed the cutoffs to lower the levels And so there's a lot more women being diagnosed with gestational diabetes when they might not actually 
have gestational diabetes. And although this is the Great Birth Rebellion, I want to seriously plug another podcast in this moment because they did an amazing episode. I think there might have even been two episodes on gestational diabetes. If you haven't found it yet, The Midwives Cauldron has done an insanely good quality episode on gestational diabetes. So listen to that because it's the prequel to this one, I feel. I'm not repeating what they've said. So what I'm saying is it's contentious and that the expectation on pregnant women is to keep their blood sugar lower than non-pregnant people. Because what do you want this to be about then? Um, What's your plan? So there's a Cochrane review. I'm basically trying to get to the Cochrane review 2017 which has told us basically that we have absolutely zero quality evidence that tells us what the best way to screen for gestational diabetes is. Regardless of what the cutoffs are, there's no evidence for any of it. There's actually nothing. Like we're doing all of this on on a wild assumption. So according to Douglas Henley Moyer and Barrett and Smith Pathology Labs, they're saying anything greater than 5.1 for the initial fasting glucose, one hour, anything greater than 10 or two hours, anything greater than 8.5. So if we vaguely have a look at what cutoffs we're using to diagnose gestational diabetes in pregnancy, the contention is is that it used to be one classification, but they've recently changed it and different facilities and different healthcare providers are divided on which classification or which diagnostic cutoffs diagnose diabetes. But when I do, if I do gestational diabetes testing for my clients, when I get the report back, underneath it, it tells me what kind of criteria they've used to diagnose gestational diabetes. And they're saying that if when the woman comes in and does her fasting initial blood sugar, so when you walk in to do your gestational diabetes test and you've been fasting, if it's if that initial level is above 5.5 and or your two-hour glucose. No, isn't it 5.1? Well, it's above 5.1. The description, so this is, there's two, they've offered two different options. So they've said according to one classification, if it's above 5.5, or the two-hour plasma glucose is equal to or greater than eight, then this is considered diagnostic of gestational diabetes. But there's an alternative diagnostic cutoff for gestational diabetes that was published later. And if it's and this is the this is the contentious one is this one's got a lower cutoff. So if it's over five point one at the fasting one, if it's over 10 at the one hour or 8.5 at the two hour, then that could also be considered diabetes. The so pa- is this what it says on your pathology that there's two different? Yes. So when I, if I send a woman to get gestational diabetes testing, they'll give me the results for the test, what it showed. And then underneath it says it's got this big long disclaimer about the two separate cutoff diagnostic cutoffs that you could use to guide your diagnosis of gestational diabetes for this woman. So, and so the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare right now recommends that a diagnosis for gestational diabetes is made based on the 75 gram OGTT with one or more of the following. So if it's only one reading 
has to be equal or above this. So the fasting, so we should say here that you you do have to fast to do this test. So it's normally around eight to 12 hours of fasting. People are allowed to drink in that time. So the fasting plasma glucose is greater than or equal to 5.1. And so this is uh, done first. So you have a blood test, then you drink the drink, then you have a blood test at one hour, then you have another blood test at two hours. So three blood tests. And these are the three different um, cutoffs that we're talking about. Each blood test gives us your blood glucose level at that time. So in Australia, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare recommends that diabetes is diagnosed if that first blood sugar is greater than or equal to 5.1 and or the one hour blood sugar is greater than or equal to 10.0 and or the two hour test is greater than or equal to 8.5. So that's what one of the the criteria that's given on your piece of paper. There isn't a consensus that it has changed. And so for people who have had babies and there may have been a, um, a big age gap between babies that you will notice that there's been a change, but there is no consensus. So Mel, what's the evidence? Why isn't it the same? So let's have a look at the evidence because this is what we're here for is to work out is what we're doing and recommending to women, does it have any basis? Like where did we get this information from? So Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, always like the mic drop kind of journal that we can go to to answer a lot of these questions. And because the oral glucose tolerance test or formal glucose tolerance testing is a medical intervention, it does need, it can be tested using randomized control trials. You can blind people to whether or not they have the glucose tolerance test or not. You can blind whoever's administering it. It, This is possible, entirely possible to do in a randomized control trial. And because it's a medical intervention and a medication in a sense, then it should be studied in this way some things can't be studied with a randomized control trial but it is completely and just so people understand in in the science world a randomized control trial is seen as the gold standard of evidence so the cochrane database looks at all the evidence and it puts it all together and it gives us an answer and it's available to anyone and they make it in they do plain text summary so that people can actually understand it so we go to cochrane first for anything because it has incredible data and then we look elsewhere to see if there's any new data that's been done that hasn't yet been included or other studies because as Mel said not all things can be can have randomized control trials and they're not always suitable and there's often epic other epic research that's out there that isn't an RCT but for this kind of thing it's this is what we would want is RCTs in terms of whether something works or not RCT is where it's at. So what does Cochrane say? What does Cochrane say? So Cochrane's attempted to write an article on gestational diabetes testing multiple times. There was a 2010 one. There was a 2014. Now they've just updated it to 2017. And what they wanted to do was address the issue that to date, there's still uncertainty as to whether or not screening all women for gestational diabetes will improve maternal or infant health. So right off the bat, We don't know which technique is better, to screen everybody, to screen nobody, or to screen as an at-risk population. So the Cochrane Database Systematic Reviews found only two trials 
randomized control trials. They were both done in Ireland. And this is important because ethnicity and diet and lifestyle and location has a big impact on whether or not you will get or have be at risk of getting gestational diabetes. So they're both done in Ireland. The total population that was studied over these two randomized control trials was only about four and a half thousand women. And they were both, both the studies were found to have a moderate to high risk of bias. So basically what they're saying is there's two studies. They were kind of small. There was a high risk that whatever they found was not accurate because the quality of the studies was poor. Now, Cochrane has basically said at the end of the whole paper, they said there's not enough evidence to guide us on the effects of screening for gestational diabetes based on risk or where you do it, whether you do it at hospital, at a pathology lab with a GP. And we don't know the outcomes for women and their babies about glucose tolerance testing, if it accurately diagnoses diabetes, if doing it even improves outcomes for women and their babies, if it's capturing everybody who has diabetes, how many people are being left out. We have no idea whatsoever. Anything that's been done is culturally based, based on the setting and based on someone's preference that they pulled out of their bot bot because there's no evidence. So I find it very hard to talk to my clients about gestational diabetes testing because I have to tell them that actually nobody knows what's better anywhere. Not me, not the hospital, not your GP, no one. We can't even decide what cutoffs we should use. No one can agree on what cutoffs should be used to diagnose gestational diabetes. So it's under-researched. And it's probably one of the biggest interventions that impacts your labor. It's one of the biggest pregnancy interventions that impacts your labor and birth because for those who are listening to this, and there'll be people that are listening to this that are like, yeah, I didn't feel like I had diabetes. It was diet controlled. I never had another high reading, but I was managed as that. And then I had to have all these extra doctor's appointments. And then I was offered the induction because this is typically what happens. And we're seeing more and more induction with gestational diabetes. I think in last year's Mothers and Babies report, it was the highest reason for induction. When we look then at the impacts of that, not just the induction, but look looking at pregnancy care and people having to see, having more medical appointments than midwifery appointments when we know the outcomes of midwifery care um, and just the stress that it can cause and the stigma. But if we're putting people through that, that affects their whole pregnancy. It also affects second and subsequent pregnancies after that because they've now been diagnosed with having diabetes. And so to do something like this without knowing whether it's beneficial short and long-term why right so this is what when I talk to people about this and this is what gets a lot of attention on things like Instagram they're like it's just a test it's just a blood test what's wrong with doing it well what's wrong with doing it is that we don't know if this test even works to diagnose gestational diabetes no one's researched it properly enough that we can actually make conclusions that this is a helpful test that's going to improve outcome for outcomes in, for babies. In pregnancy, yeah. In pregnancy. And actually then for women who do get diagnosed with gestational diabetes based on this flawed system of diagnosing people, like you said, they will sometimes be shifted off if they're in a midwifery program they will often be shifted off into the obstetric clinic. And then all of a sudden they're on a pathway to be induced at 38 weeks because that's the policy, regardless of if they've managed to control their diabetes or not. And what I'd like to say here is, is that 
if you do find that you're in a state where you have gestational diabetes, if you've managed to, so normally our insulin and our body and our blood cells will manage our glucose levels to a healthy level where you're not getting major highs and major lows. If your body can't internally manage that, you can externally control that with diet. So if you've managed through your pregnancy to control your diabetes using diet control, your body and baby are completely unaware that you're in a diabetic state and you have effectively mitigated the risk of gestational diabetes. There is no issue in your body. If you've charted all your blood sugars the whole pregnancy and you've had very few high readings after being diagnosed with gestational diabetes and your blood sugars are stayed stable and normal in inverted commas, your baby and your body are unaware that you have gestational diabetes. You have effectively mitigated whatever risk this diagnosis presented you. And you're, for all intents and purposes, a normal, well, healthy woman. And in my opinion, should not be induced at 38 weeks just because it's the policy. Yes, I think there should be some interventions for women who have been unable to control their gestational diabetes in pregnancy. There are some risks to those women and babies, which, again, not the topic of this this conversation, but there might be a good reason to induce a woman who's got uncontrolled diabetes. In my opinion, there's no good reason to induce a woman who has gestational diabetes who's managed to control it with diet because they've managed to control it. They've mitigated the risk. So why are we still inducing them at 38 weeks? And so you've got to know that if you have this test and you do get diagnosed with gestational diabetes, but then happen to be also able to manage it, that doesn't matter to a to the usual hospital system. They're not going to look at your chart and go, wow, look at that. You've managed to control your diabetes the entire time. We won't induce you at 38 weeks. You're just on the same path as everybody else who's being diagnosed with gestational diabetes. So there's a massive issue and it's not around the screening. The screening test itself is probably pretty benign in terms of its impact on your body. The impact comes is the whole flow-on effect of being diagnosed with gestational diabetes. I think it's really tricky when we're given fragmented care and quick little 10-minute appointments is often our notes don't get looked at, our story doesn't get taken into consideration, and so we just get put on that conveyor belt and it's like, well, this is what we offer, this is what we're doing. So. Hmm. And then, yeah, and so a lot of what we're saying is, is this is creating a circumstance of unnecessary care for women and a, and a potential overdiagnosis of diabetes for women who don't have it. So for midwives who are sitting here going, my gosh, well, what do I do now? Because our hospital does universal screening. How do I counsel women about this when I when it comes to the time where women are coming up to their gestation diabetes test and they ask, well, why should I have this test? We actually can only really say, well, that's the policy at this hospital. Unfortunately, we don't have any evidence that supports use of this test for all women or we don't actually know anything about this test, if it's an accurate one to diagnose diabetes or not. So I mean, there is an issue though. Some women do get gestational diabetes in their pregnancy. So the question remains is how do we find these women? How do we discover these women and so that so that they can manage the diabetes and have a good outcome? Because we do know that uncontrolled diabetes, there's no doubt that uncontrolled diabetes creates pathology in a pregnancy. There's, we're not doubting that. We're saying if you do have diabetes, it's important that it gets diagnosed and it's important that it gets managed. What we don't yet know is the best way to diagnose it. Formal glucose tolerance testing has not been proven to be the best way or the only way to diagnose gestational diabetes. So let's look at alternatives. So if you 
now that you've heard this and you think, well, I don't want the gestational diabetes test, but I would like to know if I have gestational diabetes. So those are two different things. So I can talk you through what I offer to my clients. So if I look down that list of risk factors, you know, they have a a first degree relative with diabetes, potentially they're overweight or have a high BMI. They've had a previous baby above 4.5 kilos, previous history of gestational diabetes. They have, they're of an ethnicity that does put them at higher risk of gestational diabetes and women who are older in their pregnancy. The other thing I also ask my clients about is their current diet. Do you actually have a high sugar diet or a diet full of processed foods? And if they say, actually, no, I eat really well, I really concentrate on nutrition, you know, we have a chat about all of that. So my other issue with gestational diabetes testing is that if you, so our bodies will actually adapt to the amount of sugar that we eat in our day. So people who have a high sugar or high simple carbohydrate diet with lots of processed foods, their pancreas will be trained to release and make more insulin than my body that I eat what I would consider quite well. I don't have lots of sweet foods. I try and balance my carbohydrate intake with appropriate fats, proteins, and vegetables in order to balance my blood sugar levels. So I consciously eat that way. I said, you're saying this as you're chewing down on a Mars bar and drinking a chocolate milkshake. I am not. (laughs) Stop distracting everybody. What I'm trying to say is my body is not trained to deal with high levels of sugar because, and my pancreas isn't expecting it. It's, It's not thinking, oh, Mel always eats a lot of sugar. I really have to work. My pancreas is chilling out. Every now and then Mel overdoes it. We'll deal with that when it happens. But on the routine, it's not. So on that theory, if I went for a glucose tolerance test, my blood sugar, I would expect it to be higher for longer than somebody whose body is used to processing sugar because my body's got to catch up. It's got to go, holy crap, she's had 75 grams of sugar. What the heck? We've got to get insulin out there. Like there's a delay in the process of managing that sugar. Whereas for somebody who has high sugar diet, their pancreas is ready, man. It's keen. It's ready. So my theory is, and for my clients who propose to have a very healthy diet, I do talk to them about the possibility that they could respond to the glucose to the glucose tolerance test as being diabetic because their body's not used to dealing with 75 grams of sugar. So what's an alternative? I have clients are like, I do want to know if I have gestational diabetes, but I do not want the gestational diabetes test. So here's another option, which I feel it, it, again, there's, there's not evidence for this, but it's an option, theoretical option, just like the theoretical option of the oral glucose tolerance test. So I've got clients who are at risk. I say to them, if you like, Here's a glucose testing kit. So the same sort of glucose testing kit that you would give to a woman who has diabetes. So if you're diagnosed with diabetes, you would every day take your blood sugar when you wake and then one hour after starting each meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you would chart that and you would see if you can control it using diet. So what I suggest to for women who want to have testing for gestational diabetes, but don't want to have the glucose tolerance test, uh, they can just test their blood sugar as if they were diabetic. So wake up in the morning, check your blood sugar. One hour after starting breakfast, check your blood sugar again. One hour after starting lunch, check it again. One hour after dinner, check it again. And then they can chart it. And if their blood sugar levels are over, so on the chart that I give women about charting their their blood sugars, if after one hour after meals, if it's 7.4 
over 7.4, then that's considered a reading too high. And if it's over 6.7 after two hours of eating, then that's also considered high. So they can actually self-monitor their blood sugar levels and make a diagnosis based on this real-time, real food circumstance. And so if after a week of testing, this these women have not had a high reading above the, the certain ranges, and again, it's controversial what is considered a normal range and what's not, but if all of their readings for an entire week are completely normal. There's no way they could have gestational diabetes because if they had gestational diabetes, then that's represented by high blood sugars. And so in a way, you can tell if you have gestational diabetes because by checking your blood sugar in real time with real food, that gives you real answers about what your blood sugar is doing during the week in pregnancy. So that is an alternative. That's an alternative to formal glucose tolerance testing. Obviously, that's something that could be negotiated in a situation where you have a private healthcare provider. But in the chaotic, busy, large hospitals that are doing antenatal testing for everybody, they might not have the capacity to deal with an, such an individualized approach to, uh, to screening for gestational diabetes. But Certainly for women, if you feel like you are at risk of gestational diabetes, if you think, yes, I would like to be screened, but no, I don't like the idea of oral glucose tolerance testing with this sugar drink, you can just buy blood glucose monitor equipment and check it yourself and be checking your levels with your healthcare provider to say, are these normal? Because if you don't have consistent ongoing high blood sugars, you do not have gestational diabetes. I'm not saying we shouldn't test for gestational diabetes because it's definitely an issue and we need a good strategy for how to identify the women who have gestational diabetes so that we can help them have healthy pregnancies by managing the diabetes. You know, we're doing all of this testing without actually knowing if it works. So the, my other thing is, is during COVID, and not that I want to say the key C word too often because I just want to forget that, that ever happened, but during COVID, a lot of the local services just stopped doing gestational diabetes testing because they didn't want women sitting around in the hospital for three or four hours coming in to have gestational diabetes testing. So all of a sudden, overnight, they went from universal gestational diabetes screening on every single woman to not to hardly doing it at all, or maybe only selectively screening for gestational diabetes. So that tells you how important it probably is, is if they could overnight change it. And that's what happened to me. So I was pregnant during that time. And so because I was low risk, I was just given a HbA1c. So it's something we haven't talked about yet, but I think we should talk about it now. Okay. So I know a little bit about HbA1c because I've looked into it a little bit because a lot of my clients don't want the gestational diabetes testing. So I'm always looking for ways on how do I make sure I don't miss any clients who actually do have gestational diabetes. So there is this blood test that you can do. And actually this blood test, the HbA1c, is something that has been well known and tested and used for people who have diabetes in their usual life, not when they're pregnant. So there's heaps of evidence there for people who are have type 2 diabetes. I'm not sure if they use it for type 1, but anyway, they can use it to, it's a long-term marker of how well controlled someone's blood sugar levels have been. So if you've got a diabetic person who this GP is managing, for example, and they're on medication and they do their HbA1c levels and the HbA1c is super high, that's a clinical marker that they haven't that overall they haven't been controlling their blood sugar levels appropriately. And so that can help dictate management pr processes. So 
more recently, they've started trying to work out what is the cutoff range for HbA1c for a pregnant person, because we know that during pregnancy, your ability to digest and process and use sugar is altered. And so we can't just use the pre-pregnant research to and just apply it to pregnant women because we already know that pregnancy is a completely different state when it comes to insulin and insulin resistance and the use of sugar and blood sugar levels. So there has been a little bit of research on this. As far as I'm aware, it's you can rely on if you do the HbA1c in the first trimester, then that is an appropriate use and you can use pre-pregnancy levels to determine if a woman is diabetic. So if the HbA1c is within the normal range for a a non-pregnant person, then in the first trimester, then you can rely on that as an indicator of if somebody has pre-existing diabetes or a history of having high blood sugar levels, even in the absence of diabetes. But I'm not aware of the good, if there's any good evidence of that in the second and third trimesters when there's already the impact of the placenta on blood glucose levels, um, because I haven't looked into it enough. But I certainly, if I have an opportunity, will offer women a HbA1c thrown into the usual antenatal blood screen as a way of building a picture of if this woman is at risk of gestational diabetes, is there a history of high blood glucose levels? And, you know, is this someone who we should do further screening for as the pregnancy goes on? Perfect. It's a bit of a dry one today. We understand that, but it's an important one to kind of... You think it's going to be dry? I think people are going to be going, what the heck? There's no research. Like midwives who are doing this and women, I don't know. Do you think people are going to go, oh my gosh, I thought there was actually research behind the glucose tolerance test. Yeah, you're right, actually. Like it is. Lots of women don't want it. No, lots of people don't want it. Mm. But I think this episode is going to speak to the people who have felt like they got diagnosed with it and never had it, that felt like they were exposed to lots of interventions that they didn't necessarily need or want or feel that their body and baby needed. And if this, if somebody's in the realm where they have an opportunity to do some research, like if you're considering a PhD or a research topic, there's a massive gap. Like this is a randomized control trial would be easy to do on this because it's a widespread thing. There's I don't think it would be easy to do anymore, Mel. And this is the issue that we get. It's not easy to do anymore because it's so ingrained. It would be really tricky now to get the ethics to do a randomized control trial because for the majority of people, universal screening is, or for majority of places, universal screening is mainstream. But you'd get the answer. If, for example, you screened you'd everybody. you get the answer, but you've got to get the ethics before you do the study. But here's how you make it ethical and not dangerous is you have thought about it a little bit but not much i'm not going to do it i'm busy but somebody could so here's what you could do to make it still safe this is my proposal somebody better write this down and submit it please to their pull over and get a pen okay people do that so you got to enroll people in the study because it's got that's how you do a randomized controlled trial everyone gets enrolled and then what you would do is you'd randomize people you enroll them and randomize them and then so some people would do a placebo glucose tolerance test and some people do, would do the real one. Obviously, it would have to be a matched cohort, so they'd have to be kind of equal levels of risk and blah, blah, blah. You know how you match cohorts. And then all of the people would still do daily blood glucose monitoring as if they were diabetic, right? So you'd have to have a committed cohort who would be willing to do this. And then you could really accurately determine. So the half that did gestation, the 
oral glucose tolerance tests, they would still also be doing their blood glucose levels and being cared for by the healthcare provider who would have to be part of the study too. And then if they started to get high readings on their daily glucose monitoring, uh, there could be somehow a criteria by which you would be then diagnosed with diabetes, regardless of whether or not you had a positive or negative oral glucose tolerance test, or even, or if you had the placebo. So you'd still capture the women who had high blood glucose levels because they'd be doing daily testing. But you could also find out if the oral glucose tolerance test, how many women actually ended up having diabetes versus how many actually ended up having diabetes in the oral glucose tolerance test because you're going to be doing the ongoing daily blood glucose testing. That's my proposal. I I don't think any of that made any sense to anybody else except me in my head. It made total sense to me. Total sense to me. That's a great way of doing it. So basically people get randomized. One person has a placebo. One person has the actual test. Everybody is still doing their blood sugar testing as if they were diabetic to actually see what their normal readings are. And And then you will see. which one was and so from that you would say okay this many people actually had high blood glucose or high glucose readings so we would assume that they are diabetic based on that and of these people this many had the uh, positive glucose test and this many didn't and so then you would see whether it was accurate way of testing or not yes so you could see if it was an accurate test to diagnose Mm -hmm. diabetes then the people question- are enrolling right now to do their PhD based on that. We've just given you, just given you your methodology. The whole proposal's done. So yeah, go ahead. Done. We've it. even done your literature review. Get on it. Submit it as your own. I don't need any credit for this at all. That's a really good study. Thanks. I like I've, it. I've got talent in that area of working out how to do research stuff. You're welcome. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And do a really big cohort. Like we're talking like minimum ten thousand people. But well. No, wait a second. If you want outcomes, if you want to do an outcome study, you need big, big, big numbers, right? Mm. If you want to work out if the oral glucose tolerance test actually results in better outcomes for women and babies, you need massive numbers. Mm. If you just want to find out if it's an effective test, you don't need those bigger numbers. Okay. Beautiful. I do have a five-minute wrap-up. Anything you, what's five-minute wrap-up? What is it? It's where you spend five minutes wrapping up. Thank you. What we've talked about. Okay. I mean, do you want to present a five-minute wrap-up? I can do it if you like. Yeah, go for it. Do it. I'm a bit bored by this topic now. Please checked out. All right. I'm going to take us to the end. Come on, guys. I know you're surprised. This is new information to a lot of people. It might not be new information to you. Five-minute wrap-up. Gestational diabetes is a problem. If you have uncontrolled gestational diabetes, there's, there's no doubt in the evidence that that does result in poorer outcomes for you and your baby in the short term and the long term. So I think that we have a problem where we can't properly We don't really properly know how to diagnose gestational diabetes. And so we've gone with this oral glucose tolerance test or this formal glucose tolerance test as a theoretical option for testing women and finding out if they have diabetes. The problem is, is there's no consensus on how to use this oral glucose tolerance test, what cutoffs can constitute gestational diabetes as a diagnosis. And we haven't yet done all the research on if this test is an appropriate test for gestational diabetes. However, we do have a problem that some women get gestational diabetes. And now clinicians and women need to decide what they're going to do about that because we have 
there's hospital policies, but there's no research that can really help guide what the best way to diagnose gestational diabetes is. There you go. I feel like we've given you more questions than answers. Well, now you make a decision that's right for you. But yeah, we are definitely still advocating for management of people with diabetes. We're just challenging um, the testing based on the limited amount of research that, well, there is no research that really supports it. Next week's episode is going to be amazing. I can't tell you who's coming. Don't give up. Oh, okay. All right. You're such a fun spoiler. I just want shock awe. Like I have been described as a fun crusher in the past. That surprises me. Not? No, I am so fun. Yeah, if you have to tell somebody you're fun, you're not fun. (laughs) Is that like explaining the joke? B, you saw me. We partied hard in Queensland. I think prove it. Prove it to the listeners that you can be fun. Put a damn party on. Put a birth rebellion party on. We're waiting for it. I'm trying. My husband. No GTT screening. Everyone will be screened with a HbA1c on entry to decide whether or not you need to go ahead with the oral glucose. <laughs> see you on the next episode. That see you on the next episode for more see fun with Mel and B, particularly with for Mel. fun for fun with B and and not so much fun with Mel. Get out! I'm fun. I'm fun. I'm going to do a poll on Instagram. I won't oh. get offended. I won't get offended. I'm going to put this thing up now. All right. See you, B. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>